Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. We tend to think that the story of Adam and Eve only became a problem from the standpoint of believability after Darwin in the mid-19th century, but, in fact, the strangeness of the story has dogged Christians throughout history. God creates two people and puts them in a garden to eat and have sex and name some animals. He puts two trees in the garden and says they can't eat the fruit off of one of the trees. Then a snake comes by and tells the woman to eat from the tree anyway. So she does, and the man feels bad and eats that fruit too. God throws them both out of the garden. The story addresses some of the most significant questions in theology, but through a mysterious mythological lens that does not afford the reader any straight answers. Do humans have free will if God is all-knowing? Why do people do evil things to each other? Under what circumstances is sex a moral act? Why do living beings suffer and die? Each of these questions live inside the narrative without a straight response, leaving readers across the millennia to draw their own conclusions. Here to draw some conclusions with me, uh, Dr. Rob C. Thompson, your supreme hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, is our resident Catholic. You should not be surprised by Riley's presence today. Riley Claxton Hernandez, welcome. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Always a delight. You know we're talking about Augustine when Riley's here. (laughs) (laughs) But Riley talks about other things with us. We've done Mm -hmm. the New Testament and all sorts of good stuff. Um, But today, the book one. Book one. Book one. (laughs) Right? What is it? (laughs) Chapter one, book one. Yeah. Or is it it all of book one? It's not all of Genesis. No, no, no. Genesis is, I mean, the Adam and Eve story is relatively, how much is it? It's like a half of... Less than the, that, the I think. First book, yeah. Yeah, less than that. And it, yet, just to start. Yeah, <laughs> there's so it's much pool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> People have been obsessed. So, I mean, it's Milton and all these folks that have really made so much of it over the years. This is our series on Adam and Eve. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, many of you may know I'm kind of a freak about Lilith, who figures centrally in this story. And you are going to get two whole episodes on Lilith this series. Today is not that day, though. Um, today, what we I want to do is lay out the standard version and the standard interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve, which I'm saying the standard, but Riley, is there one standard interpretation? No. Not really, especially these days. But even in the historical church, yeah, there was arguments. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. There still is. There still is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll look forward to this today. Lots of arguments. Let's pledge it out. We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Can you make an Augustinian sound to open the Order of Confessors, Riley? my <laughs> oh augustine uh we want to welcome raven k kalia amanda j jason r and christian s all our brand new patrons and a pledge bump from e this is before we did our hubbard episode where i i just begged y'all to become patrons so i'm hoping we're gonna have a nice long list for you next time as well I uh, got a few reviews to call out. Claddy B2432 over in uh, Great Britain says we're like a little occult family and wonders how Rob finds the time. I honestly don't know how I find the time. <laughs> 
but here I am. I guess I don't know how you do either. <laughs> I've thought about that a few times. I'm a little insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's something wrong with me. But I really enjoy this. So this is like my fun time. My wife <laughs> went to see that Tom Cruise movie. My now everybody knows because of the last episode that my wife loves Tom Cruise because <laughs> uh, we were doing Scientology the last mm. series. And uh, she went to go. She went by herself because you know she couldn't find anyone else who wanted to see this freaking movie, and I had to stay with the kids. So she's like, "You get to podcast, Rob, and I get to go see, see Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise movies." Yeah, whatever. We all have our thing. Claddy B is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Mogera Robusta says we offer a casual survey based on solid technical research. Appreciate that. It is a casual survey. Some some series we go a bit deeper than others. This one, I think we're going to go a little bit deeper into the pool. But yeah, when it comes to the you know order of Saturn and stuff, we're, we're, we're going to not, not spend eight episodes on that. So yes, I accept that casual survey sounds about right. And uh, Totten Author offered us a, a shout out for our April Fool's episode. I suspect Totten Author might be our, our friend over at the Deathcast, uh, Ian over there. So a shout out to Ian as well and the Deathcast podcast. Appreciate that love on our April Fool's episodes. I do, oh my goodness, I love making those episodes. Those are our fictional episodes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I indulge every year in a little bit of that that game playing. All right, another sound to close us out, Riley. Ah! <laughs> oh, so no! So much pressure. It is the Roman Emperor Julian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Riley... Riley was afraid. She saw the Roman Emperor Julian coming up the way, and she knew he was going to ruin Christianity for the Romans. But only briefly, Riley. It's okay. You know you guys come back. So the Roman Emperor Julian uh, succeeded Constantius II. Of course, Constantius II was only one emperor away from Constantine the Great. If you are a regular listener of the show and have a reasonable memory and, and actually do pay attention when I'm talking, you don't just whatever cook or jog, uh, which you can do while you're listening, I want to say. That's perfectly fine. Uh, but Constantine the Great, Riley, we all know, yeah. did what wonderful thing? For the world spread christianity first is. christian yeah. emperor yes first one to convert and convert yeah. the the world to christianity uh became rome's last uh so we're talking about julian though so julian comes after constantius comes after constantine and uh now all of rome is theoretically christian and julian says hold the phone he became rome's last pagan emperor uh, because he attempted to separate rome from its relatively new conversion to christianity he sort of reminds me of the whole Atom, like Tutankhamun's dad, that whole situation where he tried to have Egypt worship the one god and then Tutankhamun erased him afterwards. It's sort of like that. Like the whole empire has gone one way, then you get this <laughs> leader who tries to change gears and nope, nope, we're not going to stick with that. But Julian was an interesting guy. Um, he canceled payments to all the Christian bishops he drove Christianity out of the upper offices of Rome. He restored pagan temples that had been confiscated by Christians. So like a lot of upheaval when you think about it. It's yeah. just a mess. He proclaimed all religions equal in the eyes of the state. I kind of like that. Gonna, can't, can't lie. Uh, and so Christianity wasn't barred. It just didn't get to be special anymore. It was special and it was really excited yeah. about that. But then it wasn't special. What's anymore. the time period here? How long has it been? Oh, let's think. If I, I can only estimate, I don't have the dates on, but if we're saying Constantine plus Constantius II, we're like 40, 50 years in the 
in the ballpark. Yeah, so there's someone that's like lived through all of this. Oh, They've it's like become Christian and now they're back yes. and they're like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's tough to live long back in the day, yeah. but yes, it's yeah. conceivable that there's a 60 year old who's <laughs> seen the whole thing. If they became Christian, they can still be Christian. Okay. They're just not special anymore. Mm-hmm. He proclaimed, as I say, all religions equal, uh, persecuting Christians, he argued was no way to remove them. Uh, we all know why, because all that did was swell their ranks. So <laughs> unlike Nero and friends, he's not sending any Christians to the lions to be murdered. Because, uh, boy, that was great publicity. Mm-hmm. On the subject of Genesis, he believed humanity had been created from many sacred drops of blood spilled by Zeus, which to him made more sense than a god who created a single man and woman. And these two people somehow birthed all the various races of men. So this is Julian's critique. Why are we bothering with Julian to start? Because Julian has an interesting critique of Mm -hmm. Genesis. How is it, Christians, he says, uh, and Jews by extension, that we have these two people and these two white people in this garden (laughs) give us Asian people and indigenous American people and and, uh, uh, African-American people? How, How did this happen? Because Rome, after all, has seen the world. So Rome knows there are many races. He asked what language the serpent spoke when it seduced Eve into eating the fruit. Okay, (laughs) good question. And he wondered, why uh, would God deprive Adam and Eve of the knowledge of good and evil? Why would he do that in the first place? How could Eve be expected to make a moral choice in the face of the smooth-talking serpent when she had no concept of what it meant for her choice to be wrong? Maybe you and I have gone through this a little bit. I don't know. I don't think so. Not really. No. I think about this so much that I, I, (laughs) I can't remember who I've talked about this with. But I think that last question is a very important one. And it's yeah. one that Augustine becomes, I think, very preoccupied yes, by in that's a couple most hundred of his, years. Yeah, writing about- uh, but there's Julian, right? Uh, same time period, more or yeah. less. I think Julian's sort of, sort of like prompting Augustine in many ways. Yeah. So this, there you go. There's your time period. Yeah. I think Augustine is definitely responding to Julian. So right there in the, in the late 300s, mm-hmm. turn to the 400s. Jewish, Jewish philosopher Philo lived from 20 to 50 CE, so if we consult Judaism now, was among the first to argue that Genesis uh, should be interpreted as an allegory. The story of Adam and Eve, he said, should not be read literally, but rather symbolically. While Philo wasn't always consistent about this, he attempted to read the Torah in such a way that it could be melded with Stoic philosophy, which was very common. We're always trying to blend the Greek philosophers with Christianity to varying ends. Writing around 180 CE, Origen, you know Origen? one of them old guys picked up philo's way of thinking in his homilies origin a christian guy writing about genesis he analyzed each line of the text in allegorical terms so boy this guy worked hard when god for example divides the water that is above the firmament from the water that is below genesis in this case is referring to the spirit which is above and the corporeal or bodily, which is below so literally every single line mm-hmm. he's got this hidden meaning for he i mean we didn't have netflix or you know this is all you had to do no it just if you, had, <laughs> you just read adam and eve <laughs> a lot if you were literate and bored you just yeah you just went through line but you didn't even have a lot of books right there were yeah, no harry potter few, yeah you're on your own you have this this bible this piece you don't even have the whole thing Humans must, says Origen, draw forth the spiritual waters and separate themselves from the waters of the abyss. 
Similarly, when God produces fruit trees, which in turn give fruit containing seeds according to their kind, Origen reads this to mean that humans must contain within their hearts the seeds of all good works and virtues. It's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. But again, secret meanings. <laughs> I'm using the word secret, but it's yes. just not on the surface. Yeah. This is not to suggest that Genesis didn't have its literal meanings uh, for origin. Certainly God literally created the heaven, uh, heavens and the skies and the plants and the animals, but not exactly in the way it is described in Genesis since these descriptions all have a hidden allegorical meaning. When God makes man, both male and female, so that humans might multiply and fill the earth, this is both a literal description of the need for sex and an allegorical description of the human's metaphysical being. James did this for us. They increase and multiply by the very accord among themselves, and they produce sons, good inclinations, and understandings, or useful thoughts, by which they fill the earth and have dominion over it. This means that they turn the inclination of the flesh, which has been subjected to themselves, to better purposes, and have dominion over it, while the flesh, of course, becomes insolent in nothing against the will of the spirit. It's interesting, because Christianity often suffers from its own uh, patriarchal structure. It has, for thousands of years, it's not like a new feminist problem. This has always been an issue. The Rosicrucians called this out. The Gnostics called this out. If Origen's approach had survived unchallenged, Adam and Eve need never have worried over the discovery of dinosaur fossils or the theory of evolution, right? (laughs) Yes, we know this. Who cares? Yeah, they're all symbolic. But unfortunately for Earth's first couple, Origen's reading fell at the hands of a guy we've already brought up too many times today, Augustine of Hippo, also known as St. Augustine in the 4th century. Augustine was committed, well, it might have been the 5th century. Anyway, turn of the century. Augustine was committed to rendering the Genesis story into a natural part of Christian's historical record. He was a leading voice in Christianity at a time when the church was making important and lasting decisions about its doctrine, and his project had a deep impact on the way Genesis was understood. Augustine's reading of Genesis was key to Christian's adoption of the principle of... Correct me if I'm wrong, Riley. I'm just going to pause after each one, and you can say yes or no, and and tell me why I'm wrong. Original sin? Yes. Infant baptism? Yes. Priestly celibacy? Yes. The significance of reading the Bible literally? Yes. Okay. (laughs) All of that. That's that's better than a home run. Uh, (laughs) The literal reading is arguably most difficult when applied to the story of Adam and Eve. A lot of the other stories are all right. Like even Noah's flood, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of magic in that. But okay, there was a flood and a guy got got out of it and maybe he had a message. But Adam and Eve, it's a lot. It's a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have yeah. to laugh. It's just so much yeah. compared to like the New Testament. Like Jesus was a guy who walked yes. around and healed the sick. And like we know people who can do that today. Yes. It's not not so wild, but... Boy, Genesis is tough. So Augustine singled Eden out in his City of God as a series of events that readers needed to understand as an actual part of human history in order to be true Christians. How many true Christians do we have these days on those terms, do you think? (laughs) Not many. Not too many. (laughs) Not too many. (laughs) You have to. Have to believe Eden literally exists. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah, no. That's tough. 
for about 15 years, beginning around 413. So there's the 5th century, Rob. Mm -hmm. See, I messed that up. Uh, Augustine labored on this book as the fully Christianized Roman Empire fell into disarray around him, beset by invading conquerors. So imagine this guy, right? He's there in Rome. Rome is Christian. Everyone's feeling so good about how <laughs> up they are with Yahweh and Jehovah. All is well. And then here come all these barbarians to wreck the system. I mean, it's unsettling, particularly when you think about the way Yahweh functions in the Old Testament. Yahweh only allows your enemy to conquer you when Yahweh has turned his back on you. Yeah. Ouch. So there's a lot of pressure on the church fathers because it's starting to feel like they haven't gotten this thing right and something needs to be fixed. I'm reading into this, but I think that's a reasonable conclusion. So Augustine wrote The City of God as a Christian response to Plato's Republic. Not contemporaneous, this is hundreds of years later, but still. Envisioning his own spiritual version of a perfect society. This project had an urgency for him because some of his contemporaries, as I'm saying, had begun to wonder out loud whether Christianity had failed the empire when it caused Rome to turn its back on its pagan deities. This is the other side of this. So not only are we as Christians worried that our Yahweh is no longer with us, Jehovah, now we also have the added problem of Rome used to have pagan gods and everything was fine with the pagan gods. <laughs> I mean, not We've great. we off the pagan gods. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the, the Vestal Virgins who kept the fire of Vesta, uh, I mean, when the, when the empire converted, they put out the fire of Vesta and the virgins were dismissed. And the putting out of the fire of Vesta became this, you know, iconic moment mm -hmm. where people kept looking, people kept looking back on that and saying, oh, maybe we should have kept that going because <laughs> there's all these barbarians killing our men, women, and children. For Augustine, the existence of evil angels like Satan or fallen men like Adam is a philosophical problem to solve. Because God is perfectly good, everything that comes from God must be good. But to be created good does not mean that we cannot pervert our own goodness. You and I have definitely yes. talked about this. Yes. Such was the mistake of the angels who erred by willing against God, namely Satan and friends. Mm -hmm. Satan and friends. <laughs> 3 p.m. <laughs> on Fox. Our freedom implies this option, even though it is ill-advised. We are free, therefore we can screw up. The same can be said of Adam and Eve, who were good, but willfully sinned against God. So angels and humans are, ex angels are extensions of God. Humans are also to some extent extensions of God, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. But whether angel or human, we have enough free will that we can screw things up. Mm -hmm. Now, in Augustine's view, humans are not created inherently good, but inherently fallen as a result of Adam's sin, since we were all in Adam as Adam sinned and have all derived from the fallen being that is Adam. This is how Augustine arrives at his notion of humans coming into the world with original sin. Still an important concept, yes? Yeah, yeah. We have not moved on from original sin in any way. No. Um, no, but there's definitely, I think, a lot more nuance to it now. And maybe you could even say a lot more of trying to, like, get away from Augustine was too much of a hard ass. It's still a church <laughs> teaching, but it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. A little more nuanced, and yeah, you could look at it either way. Like, oh, well, we, we've grown and we're, it's more nuanced, or you could say, 
well, maybe they're trying to kind of nicen it up a little bit, romanticize it a little bit. Andrew Jackson Davis, I uh, recently did an episode on him, and, and he said um, that concepts like this are bizarre because they're never in the Bible. That mm-hmm. Augustine is to blame for these ideas, and, and you can't actually find it in the text of the book that's supposed yeah. to be the, the letter of the law. But you guys are in, I mean, you guys, you Catholic, Catholics are in tough a tough position because uh, I, I, I'm always more sympathetic with Catholics, I think, with, than with Protestants. And apologies to Protestant <laughs> listeners. You have that burden of tradition yeah. that Protestants, in theory, don't have as much. I mean, they can always break off and just do their own thing and come up with a new idea. Yeah. But you all have the burden of trying to maintain, conserve tradition yeah over thousands of years <laughs> yeah it could also be the i mean it could also be that protestants have the burden of sola scriptura and yes ha- you know i mean there's definitely that it's a different burden. we're able yes it's it's different um that that's one of the parts i love for the most part about the church is is the tradition and is these thousands of years of tradition and yeah. um and that it's not just me and my bible because that i have a hard time with that 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 can't be the answer to i don't know everything i don't I think protestants can really hang with it either because yeah. they form these churches where they all have to agree yes. to part- yes. particular interpretations yes. right yeah um but yeah i, I hear you <laughs> <laughs> i hear you it, yeah that is the the burden of, of interpretation is its own thing yes uh, but in this instance it lets you yeah. off the hook because you can just say oh well that's not in there i don't yeah, want that one exactly dismissed yeah our sin in augustine's view uh, which Riley will have to live with for thousands of years, <laughs> is genetic and arrives in our blood. Since we were in, in Adam when he sinned, we were always little sperms. Not us personally, but, you know, yes. granddad. <laughs> <laughs> the four generations of humans. Uh, we, we are. <laughs> well, <laughs> what year would it be if we were the fourth generation? Like. 6,000, right? If we go with the 6,000-year trajectory, we are the 5,500. Yeah. 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 Welcome to podcast 5,500. Since we were all in Adam when he sinned, we are more liable to sin today. So literally, like, his sperms then become the sperms of the next person and on and on and on. And eggs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're talking about Adam, so he doesn't have eggs. Well, this is not our fault. It is Adam's fault. And we must share the blame as his children. Adam chose to sin out of his own free will, yes. so we can blame him. God's off the hook. The question, <laughs> God's always <laughs> off the hook, but logically. The question of willing is not as straightforward, though, as Augustine implies. So I did say God is off the hook, and Riley laughed. But uh, it's, it's, we have to argue for this, that God is off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> Because of the Julian question, why not endow humans with the ability to overcome this temptation? Um, So Augustine says, God was well aware that man would sin. And so becoming liable to death would then produce a progeny destined to die. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. This seems to subvert humans' freedom. In theory, though, it doesn't. We have free will to choose, says Augustine, and God just knows the choices we're going to make before we make them. Mm-hmm. This, I think, is that slippery slope to sinners in the hands of an angry God. We end yes. up with the Puritans yeah. on Plymouth Rock over here in the U.S., and everyone is predestined to go to hell or heaven. 
So God knows what we're going to do. This foreknowledge is a bit strange insofar as God then creates humans destined for punishment, knowing in advance what we will do. God, with his foreknowledge, could have devised a being that would not miss the mark. Right? In theory. God knows that we're going to screw it up. So back to Julian, why not create us not to screw it up? This gets even trickier when Augustine attempts to define what the knowledge of good and evil instilled by the forbidden tree actually entailed. The tree, he said, was the experience of disobedience to a commandment, and it symbolizes the personal decision of man's free will. Let me explain this a little bit. While Adam sinned as a result of his free will, Augustine suggests that the tree somehow endowed Adam with the ability to act against God's commandment. So it is confusing. Yes. Adam does it on his own, but also the tree gives him magically, you know, I, I use the word magic because it, it is magic. Because I can't go and eat a fruit and have this happen to me. <laughs> Something changes about Adam when he eats the fruit. But the in order to eat the fruit, he also has to have this thing yeah so it's a little chicken and eggy yeah even adam disobeyed in order to become magically endowed with the ability to disobey is another way to phrase this mm-hmm. the paradox grows and at augustine of course didn't view this as a paradox i'm, I'm <laughs> dealing with his <laughs> yes. logic yeah and I'm, I'm not critiquing it really necessarily right now but i'm dealing with it this paradox grows out of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the question of how exactly the tree instilled a new knowledge in the first couple. You probably have some ideas about this, or you can remember your catechisms. (laughs) This wasn't taught in catechesis. Well, what the heck? Definitely not. This feels important to me. No, Yeah, no, it's not really. I mean, it is in the way that... Original sin and all. Yeah, but not what we're... Infant building baptism. into now. Oh, okay. You know, not any of the... Not the logic of it. No. Who cares? No, 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 It's no, just no. how it's, it is. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I Move mean, in your basic, yeah, in your basic kind of catechesis. Like no. five minutes ago, what I said was good. We didn't have to go any further. <laughs> if you went to college to study this, uh, then you would bring Now we're in divinity school. Yes, okay. but not, you know, your Sunday school wasn't bringing this up if you're... <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the par- there's a paradox here, uh, right? So, in order for Eve and Adam to sin, they must have had the free will to disobey in advance. Mm -hmm. That means that eating from the tree doesn't instill them with the free will to choose against God or disobedience. Augustine is pretty okay with all this so Mm -hmm. far. They have to have this free will in order to do the eating. So, we have to dismiss the notion that they didn't have free will until they ate the fruit. Because that makes no sense. Yeah, no. Furthermore, paraphrasing Julian, if neither Adam nor Eve understood the difference between good and evil before eating from the tree, then the question becomes, how could they have known that the eating itself was wrong? God told them not to, but they could not have interpreted disobedience as morally wrong if the fruit had not yet endowed them with the understanding Mm -hmm. of what is wrong or right. Mm -hmm. I'm just literally interpreting the meaning of the knowledge of good and evil here which Augustine doesn't really want us to do. (laughs) So Augustine's going to solve all my problems here. Yeah. We may not like it, but he's going to do it. Yeah. He argues that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree with the longest name, I think, of all trees, (laughs) was 
was not write in for if you can come up with a name of a tree that is longer than this maybe something in game of thrones i don't know it was not magical in any way but was just like any other fruit bearing tree let's pause for a second (laughs) okay so remember what i said i could just eat a fruit and it's not like this augustine's saying no rob actually go eat a fruit it is just like this adam just ate a regular ass fruit writing on the tree as a literal plant in the garden. Like any other plant, like go out into your garden, walk down the street, go to the neighborhood farm. Mm -hmm. It's like that tree, says Augustine. Augustine asserted that there wasn't anything inherently evil about the tree or its root, fruit, but rather that it was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil, quoting Augustine here, on the supposition that man would eat of its fruit after the prohibition and so there was within it the future violation of the command Mm -hmm. i mean that's like some time travel stuff but god sees the future and knows in advance that this regular ass tree (laughs) so so that's why he called it that yes (laughs) you think it would have tipped adam off (laughs) the bad tree Maybe God should have been more to the point. I don't mean to question the the benevolent creator. Okay. So the observance of the command in itself, says Augustine, would be good for him, Adam, that is, and the violation of the command would be an evil. So God creates this tree as a regular tree, picks it almost at random in the garden, and says, that one, don't eat from that one. And that's the test. Adam is on the line now to just not do that because God says so. Mm-hmm. I know some of you are yelling at your, your radios. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, this is where the Gnostic complaints come from and everything. What? This is so arbitrary. This is not to suggest that the eating did the teaching, though. To solve the chicken and egg problem. So back to, you know, that you have to eat it in order to understand, right? Yeah. So even if the, the fruit isn't magic, the act of eating it is the only thing that can teach Adam what is wrong. But Augustine says we can't do that because then we can't hold Adam accountable for his act, which is Julian's problem. So Augustine says that Adam and Eve could understand evil even though they never experienced it from contraries now riley you have talked about this in different terms yeah this is how we understand concepts like nothing and a void none of us ever have experienced nothing even in those sensory deprivation chambers there's something there Mm -hmm. but i can teach even my children maybe not my two-year-old but my five-year-old's reaching the point perhaps where she can begin to conceptualize nothing Not in the, you know, like Nietzschean sense or, you know, Jungian confronting the void, but (laughs) that there is nothing here, whereas there is something there. Yes. So Augustine says, if we know what nothing is, even though we've never experienced it, the same can be true of something like evil. We know what it's like to have something, and so we infer what having nothing must be like. Adam understands evil well enough, despite not having eaten from the tree, since to quote directly from Augustine, through the knowledge of good, evil is known, although it is not felt. Good is held onto, lest by loss of it, evil be experienced. I don't yes. know if you said this exactly, Riley, when we've talked about this before, but this should, does this yes, sound familiar? Yes, yeah, that's what evil is. Yeah. It's a, it's a, we guess at evil. Yes. 
maybe some of us do evil i don't know but we we know it because we know what good is yes and yeah yeah so we don't need to do evil to know what evil is because if we know what good is we We can just through the opposition yeah if we know what black is we can know what white is if Mm -hmm. we know what up is we can know what down is yeah okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) augustine's example is the best though up and down don't make as much sense as nothing and something because nothing is far more abstract if the knowledge of evil or disobedience was not instilled supernaturally by eating the fruit then it was always possible for adam and eve to reason their way into uh their nature uh, the nature of evil and to know better than to violate god's prohibition so i guess the asterisk here is reason Mm-hmm. You need to be able to reason. I mean, I can start to come up with counterexamples for Augustine if if we think about folks whose capacity for reason is you know, maybe they're they're born with uh, mm-hmm. you know some sort of disability. Um, but fine, yeah. <laughs> the, most of us can reason our way into the difference between something and nothing, mm-hmm. and then therefore good and evil. Mm-hmm. So characterizing the tree of knowledge as a perfectly normal tree, like any other tree, solves a lot of problems for Augustine. I unfortunately have to fight with him here, though. I'm going to, I don't even think it's a quibble. I think it's an important problem because it's inconsistent with the rest of his reading. Discussing the tree of life, Augustine says that, quoting, the fruit of the tree of life was material food and yet it had the power to give lasting health and vigor to a man's body. Okay. So we have two specially named trees in the garden. And one is magic. And the other and one is not. And not because Augustine says so, right? Mm-hmm. He is reading into this and saying this must be true. Mm-hmm. But the by like if as a liter like a, I I was an English major in college. Uh, and yes, I have a PhD in the humanities. I've read and analyzed a lot of literature in my life, plays mostly, but uh it, it's bad it's bad uh reading it's bad mm-hmm. close text analysis bad analysis to say the bible with no context it has differentiated these trees when in fact yes, it's capitalizing both yes. and if one's magic then yes augustine the other really probably has to be magic there's no no context clues god's really living us or, or <laughs> i don't know who wrote genesis in a catholic uh is it moses yeah that's okay Oh, I don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just thinking. I've got my religion, history, Bible history hat no. on. No. Catholics say, yes, Moses wrote no. this. No. Abraham. Abraham wrote it. How did he know? Oh, gosh. Oh, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Divine yeah. inspiration. Divine inspiration. I mean, I that's guess the, the story is passed down. We, we could yes. say that it's and passed that's, down. And that's, I mean. If we do away with that, we do away with a lot of it's all good. History, Oral right? tradition, do, yes. Finally written down by the yes. Jews sometime around yes. six hundred. But yes, the teaching is divine inspiration; that it was divinely inspired. Whoever wrote it, yes. But I, I and it's it's in there. I'm I'm. And you're far it. more concerned with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, yeah. right? You guys Most don't Christians are yeah. sweat it out over Genesis too much. No, I mean, there's a lot of things like there's a lot that. I don't know. I've gleaned from those and from the Adam and Eve story, but I also, we also just don't care. About or I, I personally, I'm like, oh, God, I don't really care. I just like, it. especially again, I mean, we'll talk about it, but like 
you can, in, in Catholic tradition too, you can view it kind of however you want. There's these main, in, in, in the catechism, there's, we believe that the fall happened. The fall was an event. A historical event in time. Yes. One human? Um, Could maybe, be. Maybe, but not yeah. some, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be Adam and Eve. It doesn't need to be the first two people. There's a lot of different theories around, you know, what it means. You are free to believe that it was a historical event if you want to. You That's can. the easiest. You can. <laughs> yeah. You can believe that that, or you can believe, you know, I mean, um, of it is more of a, a an allegory, a myth, a way of kind of explaining the creation of the world to us in terms that we would understand okay um or that they you know people would understand a long time ago um and so in and kind of everywhere in between but what's required is that you believe that the fall was an event that happened somehow yes that the fall that this separation of man from god um so a lot of the logic of augustine has been dispensed with but they've maintained you've maintained the principle that he arrives at from the logic yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the fall happened. That's, the fall did that's, happen. And obviously there's a ton of theories that, that go around it and some work and some don't. And, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's fair. Kenneth Kemp and, and there's, you know, then people that think that Adam and Eve stand for a group of people rather than one person. Um, and that does technically fit into yes. Catholic teaching, you know, that there's... Like what, what that theory where it's like there's the biological species, the philosophical species, and the theological species. Mm. Even, you know, and yeah. there's all of those, and there's and so some of them are populations the Eves, of people, and some are the atoms. There's all these different, and so they all technically work, and you kind of can believe what you want to about that. But that what we glean from there is the fall that of how God created us to be in communion with Him and communion with each other, um, and then by by the fault of human that was separated. There was the, there was a separation there. And yeah. somewhere in North Africa, Augustine's bones just flipped out of a coffin. <laughs> All this will work. <laughs> Adam and Eve were uh, ordinary humans, just like you and me, but their access to the tree kept them alive and youthful. Going back to my tree of life. Yes. Yeah. It's magic. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> we got hung up on that being in, inconsistent. So, yes, back to the magic. This is Augustine's view of the tree of life. Adam lived more than 900 years. Eve lived still longer. Again, if you're accepting, Augustine, that this is literally true. If the fruit of the tree of life had supernatural properties, it should follow that the tree of knowledge would as well. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and I've told you all why. It's just, yeah, the English major in me. Augustine offers no basis for determining what must be explained in natural terms and what is allowed to remain supernatural. Yeah. He seems to choose between the natural and supernatural according to whatever is most convenient for his argument, which actually works for what you're talking about in modern Catholicism. We like the, the ideas. <laughs> Don't bother us about the logic. Like, and, and in that, I think, I mean, I, I think also... It's if you view it as a myth, you view it as an allegory. It's fine. It's okay, it's okay if the tree is magic. Like it's it it does. But it, I think in his desperation for his argument of of taking this so literally, then we have to make it work. But if you're viewing it as what is this teaching us? If you're viewing it as an allegory, it's okay. It's not as <laughs> we can it's, all relax it's okay. A yeah, like yeah. <laughs> I'll get to why he's so obsessed yes. with that. But well, uh, so um, let's do the supernatural natural. The rivers that flow from Eden are actual rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. You can find them on a map. Mm -hmm. 
but they must flow underground to account for the fact that we can't locate Eden for the life of us. <laughs> We've been looking. The serpent was a perfectly ordinary animal without the ability to speak, except that it was possessed by the devil when it spoke to Eve. So ordinary animal, magical supernatural event with Satan getting inside. God appeared to Adam and Eve and spoke to man in paradise as he spoke later to the patriarchs such as Abraham and Moses, namely under some corporeal form because the text says God walked in the garden and so there was no other way to interpret it. We just have to let that be. We don't get to see God walking around. Adam did. Abraham did. Moses really mm -hmm. didn't get to see God walking mm -hmm. around. He got to see a burning bush. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> God's gotten more distant in that way. While it may seem absurd to question the literal implications of an allegory, as Riley's pointing out, so much easier. Just let it be an allegory. Augustine believed, and here we get to this, that readers had to accept the Genesis story as historical truth. Augustine argued that figurative readings of Eden were viable, but that they must not preclude a literal reading of Genesis. So maybe he's letting you off the hook a little bit, mm -hmm. but not all the way, because he still <laughs> thinks you really have to buy it as a literal story. His various readings of the tree are the kind of thing, quoting him, that can be said by way of allegorical interpretation of paradise, and there may be other more valuable lines of interpretation, he says there is no prohibition against such exegesis, provided that we also believe in the truth of the story as a faithful and historical fact. Go nuts! <laughs> Have your tribes of Adams and tribes of Eves meeting each other, sexing each other, falling together. But you need to also literally believe that there was an Eden and there were these two people and they had these names and there was a snake and it talked. <laughs> so don't get carried away. Well, do get carried away, but just come back to the garden. It's arbitrary in Augustine's view to decide that paradise was only a symbol. The fact that we can interpret various moments in the Bible in symbolic terms does nothing to change their literal truth. This is why the rivers must be actual rivers and the snake an actual snake and the trees actual trees, albeit with supernatural powers in the case of the tree of life. So here's, I mean, I think a, this is a core question. I mean, this is a question that y'all can wrestle with in your theology schools wherever the priests go where do they go to divinity school seminary uh seminary right the priests go to mm -hmm. seminary um but you can also study this without being a priest yes I mean, you can it, get a theology degree no requirements <laughs> just the priest puts more burden on you to figure out how to believe it all yeah. so <laughs> when you go there uh you gotta work through the fact that if you are comfortable saying the eden story is allegorical how are you picking and choosing between which parts of the Bible are literal truth yeah. and not? Because there are m many in on this podcast we've discussed and we'll discuss later, the Gnostics in particular, who say that the New Testament, yeah. while it includes a lot of historical events, is allegorical. Mm -hmm. Jesus spoke in allegory frequently, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, what Augustine says, where do we draw the line? And he, does, he wants to just draw it right there, right at the beginning. <laughs> no lines. Uh, although he's going to make an important exception, you can probably guess. In his two volumes on the literal meaning of Genesis, written near the end of his life, I own all of these books because they're very hard to get otherwise, uh, in translation anyway. Uh, and uh, they're not actually that expensive. This one I think I had to shell out a little bit more for, the literal meaning of Genesis. Not too many people own this book. No. <laughs> I've never. I've read people's... Discussion, discussion of the literal meaning of, of Genesis. Literal, yeah. Yes, definitely. Uh, but this was written near the end of his life. 
I don't think he finished it. Uh, He articulated why it was so important to him to read Genesis literally. While Adam and Eve can be read as allegorical figures, Adam is also, quoting, understood here as a man constituted in his own proper nature, who lived a certain number of years, was the father of numerous children, and died as other men die. That's what it says, right? Mm -hmm. And he is the father of, you know, we can trace the generations. The story of Eden is not written in an allegorical style, which Augustine contrasts with Solomon's Song of Songs. (laughs) (laughs) Could you guess? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) That one's an allegory. We can have one allegory in the whole Bible. That's the one. They're not having sex. It's naturally important to Augustine that the Song of Songs not be read literally, given how erotic it is. But his point is that Adam and Eve, unlike the unnamed lovers in the Song of Songs, are part of a historical progression that stretches beyond their story. Who begot Cain, Abel, and Seth, Augustine asks. Did they exist only figuratively, and were they not born of men? Abraham, etc. Moses, like, where do they come from? Jesus is supposed to be tied up to David, who's tied up to Adam. There's these direct lines in the Bible. So Augustine makes a pretty good point here. We kind of need all these guys. And when do we say, no, this one was imaginary. But then where did his sperms come from? Uh, Augustine is worried over a kind of historical slippery slope, as I'm saying. If Adam isn't literally real, what are we to make of Noah, who is descended from Adam by way of Seth? And if we question Adam and Noah, that raises doubts about their descendants, leading through Abraham, David, and Jesus. Where does the allegory stop and the history begin? We need to read Genesis literally because otherwise history has no firm beginning. Thoughts on this? Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough one. It is, yeah. And I also think... Like my personal beliefs might not line up with the, the Catholic view. Yeah, I you mean, don't have to be the official goes, Catholic now. Yeah. You can just be the official writer. <laughs> um, but I, so I think generally where a lot of people feel comfortable drawing that line we talk about of like, what, what are we comfortable with saying that this is, this was all historical truth and fact, and this all happened. And what's is often that kind of old Testament and new Testament line. That's where a lot of people feel comfortable uh, that's drawing easy that. for you guys. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also easy because like, the New Testament does have a lot of historical basis that we're able to really draw on. So does the old, but also sorting by like, why, what are these different books and why are they written? And some of them are poems and some of them are letters and some of them are, there's all these different, you know, they're, they're not just, I think when people sometimes think of the Bible, they think of them as these books that kind of go in chronological order and they're, right. you know, they all they serve different purposes. And so you can kind of sometimes use little bit of common sense and and think there's a book of psalms a book of poems you know you're able to kind of that is an allegory that what what purpose are these supposed to serve um and so you can i mean i think that you can take some common sense to it and kind of read it that way and that's what a lot of people do um and i think that's kind of what i do too is is Draw the line at the, at the yeah, New Testament. Picking and choosing. And, I mean, yes and no, but it's still, what are these? what is this book doing? What is this book's purpose? Who wrote this book? And you're able to glean from that. You're able to, you know, figure some stuff out from that. But <laughs> Relax a little on Augustine. Yes, yeah, yeah. So. And that's okay. <laughs> according to Augustine, what literally happened when Adam and Eve ate from the literal tree? Immediately, he says, they were embarrassed by the nakedness of their bodies. Mm-hmm and grabbed fig leaves to cover 
the organs of shame, which were the same as they were before, but previously there was no shame attaching to them. Thus, they felt a novel disturbance in their disobedient flesh as a punishment which answered to their own disobedience. We've been loosey-goosey and having a bit of fun, but here's where the rubber meets the road. Original sin I find problematic for reasons. Uh, This doctrine, though, I imagine we both begin to start to find problematic because this begins to root some of the anti-feminism within traditional Christianity and on and on. Augustine believed that uh, before they had disobeyed God's commandment, the first couple could have given a command, you've heard me say this in class before, to their genital organs for the purposes of procreation (laughs) without any trouble and without any craving for pleasure. I do teach this in class because I do a a, a discussion on privacy. And there's a philosopher, uh, Veblen, who I I have students read. Riley's read this guy, uh, who uses Adam and Eve as as sort of a metaphor to discuss why we have, why we uh, don't go around naked, why people wear clothes. This is one of my favorite classes. I remember it so clearly. (laughs) This is also the class that my husband says he fell in love with me. Is the, is the, when he said he felt he, Naked day? he fell in love with me. <laughs> I was just talked a lot. <laughs> yeah, this was like your sweet spot, class. right? Yes, right yes. between philosophy he, and he religion. He makes fun of me for it sometimes. Still He'll like bring up. I use the word ontological in that class. <laughs> he remembers it very clearly, and still now he'll like use that word to make fun of me in ways it shouldn't fit. <laughs> just throw it in yes, randomly. Yes, yes. I don't like He's the like, ontology look nice. of this. He'll go. You look nice. Well, ontologically. He just puts it in places it doesn't fit. That's to, deep. To, I'm trying to, to think about how to look ontologically nice in your in your being. being. In well, your I core. mean, I guess it's possible. humans have an ontological beauty. That's I'll I'll accept that. So, you know? but I think okay. that would probably mean if he said I looked ontologically beautiful, it probably meant I didn't actually look very nice. <laughs> you know, he's like even ontological beauty, but <laughs> yes, you kinda, inner beauty. You, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nerdy philosophical stuff. <laughs> In class, when I do this, I don't know if this happened in this particular class that Riley was in, which I can I remember the room and everything. I remember most mm-hmm. of the people in that class. Um, but I don't remember the response to this question. I will ask the men in the class whether they have voluntary control over their sex organs. And inevitably, not inevitably, but often somebody's like, oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then I use the example of the middle school kid who gets the erection because, you know, for women, they have the same problem. Uh, we can't control how we respond to stimuli. Mm -hmm. but uh augustine is saying we used to be able to do this (laughs) and we could say penis arise vagina prepare moisten sorry uh it is time it is time for making sex this is augustine's maybe i don't apologize people don't like the word moist that's the only reason i apologize (laughs) not for vaginas we love vaginas vaginas (laughs) the various bodily fluids involved in vaginas are delightful i do not apologize for them people don't like the word moist i don't get that it's an uncomfortable word for people. What am I talking about? Augustine thought we could do this, that we yeah. could will our genitals. Not us, Adam and Eve. They were the only ones to ever be able to do this. Adam's erection, Eve's lubrication could have been a choice rather than a response to unbidden sexual feelings. As you know, we're talking about here, like I'd say to my students, you didn't want that erection, it just came. Mm-hmm. We respond to stimuli, or in the case of the 12-year-old, there is no stimuli. It's just you're dealing with the, the hormonal changes. In the beginning, uh, Adam and Eve possessed no drive to concupiscence. You know mm-hmm. this word, yeah? Coming coming from rebellious flesh. Yeah, you guys love concupiscence, don't yeah. you? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's it's, you've probably just, it's, you've hit upon like my biggest 
issue that I've just concupiscence. Yeah, yes. What a what a horrible word, really. It's an yes, ugly word, concupiscence. It is, yes. <laughs> it's yes. Too many consonants running into. <laughs> anyway, uh, their concupiscence became not only. We'll let Riley go loose in a second once I get Augustine's mm-hmm. argument out. Their concupiscence became not only the product of their original sin, but also the seeds for sin in generations to come. Here, Augustine criminalizes sexual feeling or passion while allowing for sex itself as a means for procreation. So, the knowledge of good and evil is a fully embodied kind of disobedience that includes sexual knowledge but is not limited to it. Our bodies betray us as Adam and Eve betrayed God. Our bodies lust in opposition to the spirit. Our sexual organs are no longer governed by our higher spiritual natures because Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Concupiscence, Riley. I will sit back. <laughs> so I would say first, Augustine's whole thing of, of, I mean, just in general, Augustine's view on sex is we've talked about this in a, in another episode is that Couple it is times. purely for procreation and that is actually it's it's sinful to uh, for pleasure yes for pleasure and, and and anything or even just intimacy with another person union with even a spouse anyway that it's procreation that's all that that matters and that is not in line with that that's not in line with church teaching that's not dogma that's, anymore. That's his thing. That's his thing. It never. I mean. Oh, it, it never it, made it. it. No, no. I mean, the. I'm up. I'm it's both of these end. things are intertwined. That procreation, and that's part of God's like beautiful design. That's the the point. Is that there's pleasure and unity and intimacy and procreation are, are all in one, and that this actually reveals something about God. Um, our bodies and sex, they're a um, primordial sacrament, which means that they're a. a a visible sign of an invisible reality they reveal something about god and that's beautiful that's that's his design and and um so that just pisses me off and that i think we've (laughs) talked about augustine's kind of trauma and his repression and and he went from one extreme to the other in terms of this and i think that's a lot of this coming out is, is a man that has to be so severely repressed that if one little thing, you know, goes awry, he might explode yeah. or, and, or revert. And so I think that's a lot of him that's not. It does bear on priestly celibacy to some degree, though. Yeah, we, you can okay, go listen right. to that episode. We talked yeah, a lot yeah, about that in that yeah. one. <laughs> but, uh, but you're saying, like, for the lay Catholic, this didn't become a, an important part of yeah. anything. It has to. And when we talk about the shame that they experienced um, in their nakedness and, and why, I mean, I think... John Paul II talks about this a lot too. It's, oh, there's your man. There you go. Yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> it took a and while. The main... How long are we? At? This is like 57 oh, minutes in gosh. before we talk about John Paul II. <laughs> <laughs> um, but his point, if, I mean, you could really, his whole theology of the body, I think, comes down to the point of love is a gift and not use. And and. So, what is his take on this moment of shame? In that, we've now gone from a supernatural view of the other person where we view them as the creator views them and the way that we're supposed to live is in communion with the other and a relationship of mutual self-gift mm. um and now we view that other person as an object to be used is how can this person serve me how can this person gratify me and what comes along with that is a lot of mistrust of the other person too rather than a full trust and a full mutual self-giving there's mistrust there's 
there's selfishness, there's greed, there's you could be used. There's lying and even I mean I think this story this that's the story is talking about and even beyond sexually but just in the world and how we view other people rather than again that community that self-gift, which is what we were created for, is what fill, f- fulfills us as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, again, beyond sexually, just um, how can this person serve me? What can I get from this person to help me? I mean, greed, self, all of this um, that fills, you know, that it's in our world. Um, yeah. And that's what comes from this separation is that of this separation of body and soul too. I think that's a big part of it um, is before the fall, it was that our body and soul were, were perfectly integrated and there is a separation after that as well. And mm-hmm. so that's more to the point. It's not that, that, that was the shame and the embarrassment was all of this now filled the space, whereas before it was this perfect community like yeah. souls and souls yes souls yeah. seeing souls yes and yeah. there there was nothing in between there was no it know, almost calls to mind like sometimes when you're in a big crowd of people and you're like oh these people make me sad yes they're not supposed to make you sad yes i uh i, I think i've told the story multiple times on the show but it's worth repeating a few times there was a, a catholic priest uh, who uh, was a professor at Georgetown, Wayne Knoll, very cool guy, uh, who was part of my dissertation work. He was in the church that I worked with, the spiritualist church. He had married the, one of the lead mediums there because he left the priesthood. <laughs> um, I don't think for her, he had left to the priesthood for his own reasons. But he said something to the effect of, whenever I see a religious tradition or you know something, uh, people doing something that is unfamiliar to me uh, and that sort of like, he didn't say skeeves me out, but that's the idea that, that upsets mm-hmm. or, or bothers me. I, I imagine them all together opening their hearts to God, mm-hmm. that that's what these people are really up to. And, and then it's okay. Yeah. I don't feel judgy of, mm. of that other tradition. That's, that's beautiful. But that's the, yeah, that's the rub here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other part of the Genesis story is that we were made in the image of God, right? That God, um, human beings were Mm -hmm. and so in christian tradition god is a triune god right he's a god of three persons and the belief is that actually the holy spirit is born out of the love of the father and son and this father and son are in this communion with each other of just complete love and self-giving for the other Mm -hmm. and that we as humans that's why we were created basically male and female we were it, it is a sign that that's how we were meant to live as well as in like the triune god does um although just, it's complicated yes, because of but, the father and son situation but yes, <laughs> yes. I, I get and but not fully if but, we iron that not out even just, but not even sexually not even in a relationship but just in communion with each other as human beings well, i guess of, i mean the lack of a feminine in your yes in your triad yes you guys tried to get mary in there i get it i get it i get it but yes i think that's a, you're right that that's yeah. and that's what this that's what i get from the adam and eve stories all of this and you could go on forever is being created in the image and likeness of god being meant for each other are we are fulfilled when we give to others when we exist for another when we exist with another and for another and then um the fall is what then separated that yep I'm going to do a little backstory here. Yeah. I know we've done it uh, before, Riley and I. 
um, but I want to make it handy for you all today. Uh, in the Adam and Eve series in general, I'm going to sometimes touch back on things that we already discussed. Uh, we have discussed Lilith before, for example, um, but just to like bring bring the thoughts to the surface. So what Ryland have been talking about Augustine having some personal issues. <laughs> so let me just say exactly what those are. Uh, he is frequently portrayed as a prudish sexual moralist. There are good reasons for this. He had a troubled relationship with sex, which began at a bathhouse in his home city of Thagast or Thagasti in North Africa, present-day Algeria. The 16-year-old boy was stirred to arousal, presumably at the sight of the bodies around him, and his father, Patricius, rejoiced, bragging to his mother, Monica, about the prospect of grandchildren. He gets an erection, and, and Patricius is like, oh, here we go. Because, <laughs> you know, there wasn't birth control or anything. So, But Monica was a devout Christian, worried for her son's soul. This is where it gets complicated and where he gets messed up. I mean, from Riley's perspective... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patricius did not share this worry, and so Monica set out to replace Augustine's earthly father with his heavenly father. Augustine was sent to a school in Maduros, and Patricius died the following year in Carthage. Carthage, Augustine had a series of affairs. The nature of those affairs is obscured by euphemism in his memoir, The Confessions, and may have involved both male and female partners. We don't know. I don't know why we guess male, but uh, scholars, not me, who are not me, who have read this and interpreted that it's possible there was a penis in there other than Augustine's. Eventually, he settled into a monogamous relationship with a woman, which lasted 14 years. They had a son, but never married. The woman uh, was never named in his autobiography. So that's the weirdness around sex. And continue to struggle with it. I mean, in his yeah. in his confessions, he's this famous quote of, give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. You know? <laughs> like, I want I want this, I want it, but just give me a few days or, you know, give Couple me. A couple more yeah, days. Yeah, that's his famous. He continued. It wasn't like a, he continued to struggle with it, which I think is what then bleeds into his writing and just this total kind of repression. I mean, and it's not unique to Catholicism. I'm thinking no, about a billboard yeah. that I saw. I can't quote it exactly, but something like struggling with lust, question mark, <laughs> ask Jesus or something, something like that. Like, of course, everyone has, right? Like, it, that's a, it's just, it's like a leading question. Yes. Struggling with having hair? Yes. Yes. Sometimes it's annoying. Yeah. Jesus can fix my hair. I, you know, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It seemed unfair, but. Well, because it takes a, the aspect of you that's natural and says it's a problem and then tells you that this is the solution. But the solution is ultimately very Augustinian. And, and this is a Protestant billboard. I'm confident it's oh, not a yes, yes. Catholic billboard. Yeah. But when you go to that Protestant church, they're going to be talking some Augustine about sex, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to guess, just mm-hmm. based on the billboard. Anyway. After he moved to Milan, he heard the Bishop of Milan, Ambrose, preach Augustine's story away, and, and it began to sway him toward Christian belief. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, used Mary's virginity as a template to argue that celibacy was superior to marriage. He preached that the virgin birth is worthy of God, which human birth uh, would have been more worthy of God than the one in which the immaculate son of God maintained the purity of his immaculate origin while becoming human. We confess, says Ambrose, that Christ the Lord was born from a virgin, and therefore we reject the natural order of things because she conceived not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit. So there's your argument against sex. Thanks, Ambrose. Monica arrived, separated Augustine from his mistress, sent her back to Africa, and it didn't take long after his partner's departure for Monica to finally see her son converted to Roman Catholic Christianity. He hasn't been one to this point. He was a Manichaean for a while, so he's toying around with different ideas. 
Uh, and belief in the power of sexual continence comes with this. <laughs> From Monica, anyway. Mm-hmm. In Ostia, he experienced a peculiar dual mystical experience with mom while discussing the happiness of the saints, both stretching upward with fiery emotion. Days later, later Monica became ill and she died. So... From the bathhouse to mother's confrontation with his mistress, Augustine's theology regarding sexual feelings had suggestive correlations with his biography, as Riley's saying. But it's unfair to say that Augustine was anti-sex. Let me let me try this argument. While Augustine's sexual mores may seem conservative, they were actually fairly liberal when held up against some of his contemporaries. So let's put him in conversation. <laughs> For Augustine, sex was part of God's plan, and as Riley's saying, and in the beginning was created by God as a good and righteous act. Adam and Eve could have had sex in the garden, and would have, but for the fact that they sinned and fell too soon after their creation. So if they had just, you know, hung out a little while longer and avoided that tree, they could have started having sex and maybe got interested in something else. By contrast, John Chrysostom, who I believe is also St. John Chrysostom, much like St. Augustine, believed that there never would have been sex in Eden because intercourse was only made necessary as a result of the first couple's expulsion from the garden. Except that's literally not true because it (laughs) literally says the two became one flesh. I don't. I can't Chrysostom (laughs) Before, before the fall. It just, there he was. (laughs) That became, I mean, I guess Chrysostom's probably just going to read that some other way. Yeah. They don't, but be, I mean, not that way. They don't I, become I mean, it that way. <laughs> I don't know how else you read that. Not with their genital bits. They held, they held hands. hands. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> when both got there at the same time. They held hands. I don't know. I, yeah. Where were we? Augustine said that if Adam and Eve had not fallen they still would have had sex in the garden since eve's purpose as a helper was to help adam create offspring over time people would have come to fill the garden until adam and eve would have had to be transformed by god from physical to spiritual beings like angels and yield their home in the garden to their children just be too many people in there so augustine had it all worked out and sex was in there Augustine's project to reconcile an all-good and all-knowing God with a God who created a garden containing a forbidden tree and a devil-possessed snake (laughs) that caused humanity. (laughs) It's tough, right? Caused humanity to fall into sin and suffer no end of terrestrial and spiritual torment. Uh, It was a tough project, right? That's just hard to do. The story's tough. Everything that God creates from Augustine's perspective is good. To assert otherwise would be a heresy. Even the devil was not created evil, but fell, perhaps from the moment of his creation because of his own envy and pride. Envy for Augustine amounts to aspiring to rewards that one has not earned. Such was the sin of Adam and Eve, who sought to take rather than earn godlike knowledge. They failed to accept what God had given them and to rest content in what they had and what they were. After the fall, they were cursed with that old concupiscence, which, by the way, is not, I was trying to say this earlier, is not entirely sexual. Augustine defines it as a disharmony of the self and a nature at war with itself. So not limited to sex, but sex is frequently, or sexual lust is frequently the result. Um, All temptations, though, against the dictates of our conscience, if you want to punch that guy in the face or, I don't know, eat that whole cake. Mm -hmm. 
However, the story of Genesis places clear emphasis on sex since the first realization the first couple arrive at is their nakedness. That is true. They don't suddenly decide that they want to eat a whole cake. That'd be pretty hilarious, though. And boy, <laughs> would, would we be in a different situation right now if that's what Genesis said. And they were naked and wanted cake. What is the cake? We must not eat cake. <laughs> All pornography is cake-based. <laughs> <laughs> illicit cake shops <laughs> that that uh that billboard you saw would have been like oh. <laughs> struggle with stress <laughs> do you want cake, cake. <laughs> jesus can help <laughs> man oh man by augustine's logic and the text of genesis itself sex was part of god's plan for humanity and so could not have been wrong or evil and so august cake not necessarily though there was no cake in the garden and so Augustine finds himself reconciling another seeming paradox. God created sex, and yet nudity becomes shameful to Adam and Eve after they eat the forbidden fruit. Augustine concludes that the fall, while by no means supernatural, must have changed something about sex, and that something is the introduction of passion or unbidden sexual feelings. But if the tree is just an ordinary tree, why would Adam and Eve experience this species-altering shift in their psychological and biological functioning? I think I've been not... Crit- I've let Riley do all the Augustine critiquing this episode, <laughs> right? I've, I've sort of just yeah. laid him out. Yeah. So this is, my tur- this is my turn to do a little of my own riffing here. I'd like to suggest a different interpretation of this moment. That is the eating of the fruit that does not create as many logical pitfalls as Augustine's version. Again, I've thought about this a lot. I actually rewrote this episode a couple times. Yeah. Because I want to try to get it right. When Adam and Eve cover themselves, the most logical conclusion is that in their sinful state, they have learned to disobey, hide, and feel shame over their God-given bodies and God-given impulses. Yeah. This isn't lining up with Riley so far. The loss of innocence is the beginning of disobedience in the form of guilt and self-loathing. Now I'm going to depart for you maybe a little bit here. The very sin Augustine imparts to humanity is a sign of his own fallen nature. Adam's fall gave Augustine his guilt, not his desire. I know, I'm, I'm theologically on the, on the edge here. For humans to return to a guiltless state... They must learn to follow God's voice in their souls, their feelings and inclinations, but also their intuition. Humans only harm themselves and each other and offend God when they seek to disobey and pervert their own nature. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not exactly in line with John Paul here, but I'm not far off. But I think also that... I think you are. I think the disagreement would be what is our nature? What is what? Perhaps, what, yes. what is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What is the uh, nature yeah. of? I wouldn't be plucking out any our eyes desires and all of that. Yes, from that's our sex the disagreement. Episode, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but for the most, but other than eyes. that, yes, it just would be that's the disagreement. Yeah. yeah, we're allowed to find people attractive because we do. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there, it comes down to it. I mean, and that's that's, I guess, what I'm I'm arguing here. If mm-hmm. it's something that comes naturally from you. To curse it or guilt it is to suggest that God has made a mistake in you. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even Augustine says that an evil thought is not a sin unless it's, you know, consented to, unless we then act on it. That is a, well. I mean, Augustine even says that, <laughs> you know. I'd, Jesus will quibble a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Careful who you look at. But, yeah. uh, but I still think there's a difference between letting that thought entering your head and 
then basically what Augustine says is consenting to the thought, letting it fester, you know, entertaining it. There's still a difference there. Yeah, I'd quibble with him still. Yeah. yeah. If that's what you're inclined to. Mm-hmm. And every, all humans are inclined yeah. to do that, right? <laughs> Or most of us, I guess. There are asexual yes. people I'm going to acknowledge. I apologize. But many of us. Um, and if but we couldn't all be asexual because then we wouldn't have people, right? Yes. It's still part of God's plan yes. anyway is what I'm trying to say yes. is these sexual and is, feelings. Yes. And we have sexual feelings for they're more than just our God-given there, yeah. yes. So uh, another way to look at this is the European explorers. This is what I'm going to close with today. When European explorers first arrived in the Caribbean, they encountered tribal cultures where people went mostly or entirely naked. European explorers regarded these tribal groups as living in a kind of Eden and wondered whether they had discovered paradise. Writing to the monarchs of Spain, Christopher Columbus described the Caribbean as a kind of paradise. He said, This island and all the others are very fertile to a limitless degree, and this island is extremely so. In it there are many harbors on the coast of the sea, beyond comparison with others that I know in Christendom, and many rivers, good and large, which is marvelous. The people of the New World were similarly similarly Edenic in character. All go naked, men and women, as their mothers bore them, although some of the women cover a single place with the leaf of a plant, or with a net of cotton, which they make for the purpose. They have no iron, or steel, or weapons, nor are they fitted to use them. This is not because they are not well built and of handsome stature, but because they are very marvelously timorous. It is true that after they have been reassured and have lost this fear, they are so guileless and so generous with all that they possess that no one would believe it who has not seen it. They refuse nothing that they possess if it be asked of them. On the contrary, they invite anyone to share it and display as much love as if they would give their hearts. I mean, that sounds nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are like perfect humans. <laughs> and they're often described this way, um, that the early that the folks of Puerto Rico, um, that they were just really chill. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, and I think that comes back to kind of what I was saying about that shame being based in fear of each other, of ourselves, mistrust in each other, mistrust of ourselves. And when that isn't present, then here we th- just have some naked is. people yeah. <laughs> yeah who have sex sometimes and sometimes yeah. they don't but they're not stabbing each other anybody yeah. Yeah, they're all getting along real well they were um historically uh, we know that they were visited by rival tribes who um were not kind to them and, and cannibal mm-hmm. theoretically cannibalism but it's hard to tell when you read the historical record from european explorers but these cultures show the degree to which judeo-christian the judeo-christian attitude toward clothing not to mention violence and ownership has been socialized into us, Westerners. When Adam and Eve put on clothing, it surprises God. Children would not develop taboos around nudity as they mature, but for the fact that society tells them they must. We're sort of a casually nude house, that won't surprise you. My daughter's five at this point, and, uh, you know, like, (laughs) there's, of course, boundaries, Mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of them. Um even though she's getting older, I, I still think she's too young to, to be too, uh, you know, um, heavy handed about it or to make yes. her feel like nudity is bad or wrong. And uh, she's naked in parts of the house. She really shouldn't be because we have big open windows without curtains. 
Oh, well, uh, <laughs> she just doesn't care. But I think by five, some children have started to develop feelings like their bodies need to be covered up yeah. because we tell them, you know, parents That's where it comes socialize from. It doesn't them come, yes. into them. Yeah, mm-hmm. Katie and I just don't, so yeah. she doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you're not letting, you know, we don't go naked to the grocery store. She's not like, <laughs> no, yeah, showing, so, yeah, there's, she's there's aware still of a bound, but, yeah. but that, that still doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It's just yeah. that there's... We just don't happen to do it. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> but for their sin, Adam and Eve's, that is, nudity and sex need never have become a problem for the couple. And so Augustine's worry over lust is misplaced. Paradise is honesty about our bodies and our feelings, which need not be controlled as long as they are in tune with God's will for us. Final thoughts mm-hmm. on the official Adam and Eve mm-hmm. story, which you're suggesting, Riley, is like it was official for a long time. You, you're not a historian of these things, but no. when would you guess Catholics stopped getting so obsessed about? Like the Augustinian version of this was, we clung to it, I think, right? The church fathers yeah. stamped it I off mean, and said, this even, is how it is. I mean, even like, you know, around the time of Darwin, I think people then clung, some people clung even harder to it. Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe in like the last century. That have we really started to like, but I mean, yeah, I it just, I think the biggest is creationism. That was more the, the issue with the story. It wasn't necessarily whether the tree was magic or not, but what, did God create the thing. world in seven days? No. Yeah. I mean, the Big Bang Theory was, you know, the thought that it was coined by a Catholic priest, you know. The, oh, it, that's interesting. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. Yes. The no. guy that came up with the Big Bang Theory was, was a Catholic, Catholic priest. priest. Yes. Look it up. Um, what's his name? Do you know his name? Oh, oh. Blank on it. <laughs> well, everyone look it up. I mean, whoever, I mean, if you know, I, I mean, yeah. That's most people fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, that's never been an a issue. A Jesuit, probably. I'm sure a Jesuit. <laughs> I mean. With their, well, well, well. With their secret plot to control the world. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Um, but. You so, guys so, yeah, aren't that's, making that's creationism museums. No, definitely yeah. not. That's definitely not a part of, there's, I'm sure there's a small sect of catholics but i'm say a small sect even among like traditional catholics it's not really you don't worry about it so much no it's dinosaurs it, aren't the devil's work no no evolution's definitely widely accepted like that all mean that's a very yeah so i think that's more the issue was for a while but then once that became kind of widely accepted that was and we kind of it was a, i don't know we moved on we moved on it was a yeah we could chill <laughs> that was more the issue um yeah i don't know if i have any well, what do you think? Why are people... Because I think it's sort of strange when you put it that way that Augustine, who defines so much of core, like core Catholic principles that yeah. are uniquely Catholic, like you know, infant baptism is one of those things yeah. that has been you know, changed in Protestantism. And yeah. yet, when we look at uh, maybe it's evangelical Christianity, they're going back to Augustine with yeah. their commitment to a literal reading and we've kind of moved on from him in some of it's those aspects. It's kind of strange. I mean, yeah. Is it ironic? I don't, it is a bit. It's ironic. It's yeah. unexpected. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, we've done that with a lot of saints too. Um, I mean, he's moved just on. one of, he's one of the, not moved on, but like <laughs> there is, you're free to believe or not believe in a lot of what saints say, unless it's obviously dogma of the Catholic church, but a lot of saints are vastly different and argued and had a lot of different beliefs um and you're free to kind of believe or not believe you're uh, you're in a lot of that and a lot of the kind of magical things that have happened with a lot of saints you're free to believe or not believe in in, in 
a lot of those things. Um, Joan did drive the British out of France. She did. I mean, briefly, but still. She did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's a historical fact for but, you. Um, and so I think that it's just that he is, I mean, as the, a doctor of the church, like you said, has had so much influence on what is Catholic dogma now and teaching and to go to kind of then do away with some other, you know, aspects of his writing is, is Tough. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is, he, was, he was right place, right time. Yeah. yeah. I do think what is interesting about his teaching of Adam and Eve that I feel like though isn't talked about a lot is his belief that like Adam was the cause of the fall and not even me. I think we kind of touched on that a little bit over, um, but that he, he caused the fall, not Eve. Eve was not the one, but that Eve was, as he said, she was deceived by the serpent. So she wasn't fully able to sin. You know, sin requires full He made the consent. choice. He, he knew what was going on. He saw what happened. He was not deceived by the serpent. He saw the choice that she made and fully chose to join her, mm-hmm. knowing, basically, n- knowing the effects. And so he deliberately chose that separation from God. He, he chose that. Um, and that is an interesting, and that then has, so church teaching now, if you've heard of the new Adam and the new Eve. No, tell so, me. So Jesus is the new Adam, oh, and the church yes, is the new Eve. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that basically Adam made the choice. I think he basically, I think Adam, what Augustine says, Adam had in his head these two choices. Basically, either he could abandon Eve and leave her which he didn't really want to do or he could join her right in mm-hmm. her sin that was he i think that that's kind of the two choices what augustine says that he thought he had but um you have then what christ did the point is that he did not abandon us yes but he also did not join us in our sin he sacrificed uh, himself and that and had mercy and had compassion that that's what was the, the alternative what do you mean Rather than sacrifice himself, if he was join like, in the sin, he was like Pontius, screw it, I'm gonna join in the sin. I don't, basically, sacrifice some doves here and sell stuff. In the, I mean, in the temple. Okay, well, we could go off that. <laughs> okay. he, that Jesus did choose his sacrifice. He didn't have. He, he is God. That was the point. That's the All right, right, right. But um, <laughs> it's a weird hypothetical. But that, that Adam, yes, <laughs> Jesus says, hold the phone. It's okay, Pontius, Adam I get could it. have had compassion and had mercy and but instead he only saw basically blame or sin and he actually chose both he he blamed eve too he joined her in her sin and still blamed her to god i think kind of hoping for i see some kind of vindication but i think that is an interesting point that is a whole other level to the story um well because that's not really accepted throughout history either i mean adam and eve story we're, we have i think done this enough yeah. on the show but we're at the end so we can play around a little bit yeah. is that you know eve of course is the justification for the burning of witches ultimately yeah is that women but, are responsible. i mean it's, this is augustine's teaching so it's him that that she couldn't have basically caused the fall because she was deceived she didn't make the 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 she <laughs> did not odd. make the choice adam made the choice <laughs> adam made the deliberate choice to separate from god knowing that Eve was deceived. So but, just like he selectively read the Bible, people selectively read him. Yeah. And Augustine actually compared it to when he was a teenager and he would um, 
steal pears. There was this group of kids that would steal pears. And Naughty boys. He, would, he would steal pears with them, not because he wanted the pears, but it was the company of the kids stealing pears. And that's kind of how he compared to Adam was – Adam basically didn't want to leave Eve. It was Eve's company and whatever, and and that's. I guess if the, you were the only two people on Earth, the stakes are slightly a, a lot higher. higher. But okay. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. <laughs> yes. Those kids over there are stealing tangerines. You got some options. Yes. But, yeah, but Adam didn't have a company. choice. Yeah, and so Eve or nothing. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I think that's just a very interesting part. Is that the most people wouldn't know. The Considering Augustine is. has kind of created what, oh, just not Catholic, but Christian thinking of, like you said, on the Adam and Eve story, but mm-hmm. that that it was Adam's, Adam caused the fall, not Eve. Interesting. And that what he could have done, and yeah. Well, we are fallen in Adam, not fallen in Eve, after yes, all. Yes, we are, yes. That's the original The fall is the son of Adam, that's what Augustine says. Yeah. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors until such time as we get together and do it again. I am going to thank uh, Sean Priest, Andrew Mims, and Brandon Walls for contributing voices to this episode and the next. And I'm going to thank Riley Claxton Hernandez, our Catholic-in-residence, resident Catholic. Yeah, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> uh, good conversation as always. Uh, not as tense this time, but that's no. yeah, all right. We'll try to find something we can get more tense about next time. Here, on a next call time we'll fist fight. We'll fight. <laughs> That's what it sounds. I don't know if that'll like. make next good time we'll radio. Really fight. You're right. It'll be a lot of thud thudding. Mike. Anyhow, we were we are going to come back next episode with the get into some of the occultism now with the secret book of Adam and Eve, uh, the apocryphal Adam and Eve, which tells the story of what happened to them. After they got kicked out of the garden, uh, the but before they started having kids. <laughs> Here on a call, confessions. That was good. Yeah, that's great. About an hour twenty. Not too bad.